Hello and welcome to Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the UW Cinematheque. This is Jim Healy and I am the Cinematheque's Director of Programming. This week, the Cinematheque is bringing you another terrific feature film to watch at home and for free. The exciting 1957 British action drama, Ice Cold in Alex. The story is set in North Africa, 1942. And fleeing the encroaching German forces, a five-person British ambulance crew take on a perilous journey to Alexandria after being separated from their unit. They're led by a traumatized but disciplined and determined captain who's played by the British screen great John Mills. And their tiny band of heroes must contend with scorching desert heat, landmines, quicksand, and other more insidious obstacles on the road to safety. This suspenseful and beautifully acted adaptation of Christopher Landon's novel is one of the finest of all war films and road movies, too. Ice Cold and Alex marked a turning point in the career of veteran British director J. Lee Thompson, who directed, among many other films, The Guns of Navarone and the original Cape Fear. Thompson, along with the cast, brought an impeccable, show-stopping craftsmanship to this tale of ordinary individuals faced with extraordinary challenges. The really arrestingly beautiful black and white cinematography is by the frequent Thompson collaborator Gilbert Taylor, who later shot both Star Wars and A Hard Day's Night. And uh, the American release of this film, which was has been really beloved in Britain for years, um, was generically retitled Desert Attack. And in fact, it didn't come out until 1961, just before The Guns of Navarone was released. And that version, called Desert Attack, had nearly an hour removed from the original running time, uh, 52 minutes by most sources, uh, 52 minutes from a 130-minute running time. And the Cinematheque is pleased to offer a recent restoration of the uncut version of Ice Cold and Alex which is the perfect way to discover this unsung masterpiece. So we have a limited number of screening codes, 100 in fact, that will allow you to watch Ice Cold and Alex at home. To receive a link to view, send an email to info at cinema.wisc.edu. That's info at cinema.wisc.edu and make sure to have the words Ice Cold in the subject line or in the first line of your email and we'll send you a link to view. On the first segment of this podcast, I'm going to be joined by my fellow Cinematheque and Wisconsin Film Festival programmer, Ben Reiser. We're going to sing the praises of Ice Cold and Alex and assess the fascinating career of director J. Lee Thompson. In the second segment, which we'll introduce later, we'll be joined by our special guest, editor Mark Goldblatt, uh, who was the editor of J. Lee Thompson's 1984 movie, The Ambassador, which we screened at the Cinematheque in 2017. So, Ben, this was your first time seeing it, right? It absolutely was. Um, it, it's interesting. I, it was my first time seeing it, and I'd only ever, as far as I can recall, ever heard of it um, in the last few weeks. I was working on uh, another podcast um, uh, with my friend, and we were uh, watching Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and was looking at J. Lee Thompson's filmography and saw that title, and was sort of very curious about what the meaning uh, of that title was, what kind of film this was. And I have to say one of the one of the most pleasurable aspects of watching Ice Cold and Alex uh, was finding out what that title means um, uh, <laughs> during the course of watching the movie. Uh, it's uh, it's a wonderful title and a, and a very clever, Clever, clever phrase to have to have pulled. I, I, I was interested, you know. Jay Lee Thompson seems to have a mix of movies with really uh, titles that stand out, like Ice Cold and Alex or The Reincarnation of Peter Proud, and then some titles which are so generic that you almost have to force yourself to watch the movie against all odds that it might be interesting, uh, like Northwest Frontier, which I. I've 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 in my head tried to remember what the name of this movie is for the last five days, and I'm keep thinking Northwest Passage, Northwest Territory. Uh, it's it's a terrific film. Northwest. Those are all actual titles for other movies, I'm sure. Yeah, but 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 the now this is an interesting case of the American title being more 
interesting than the British title. Northwest Frontier was called Flame Over India in the U.S., which, you know, isn't great, but it's a little more little more descriptive and a little more precise to the movie. In fact, when you actually see it, there are flames over India. In a little film. more memorable. Yeah, a little more memorable. And uh, it's kind of the opposite of what happened with Ice Cold and Alex, which is such a great title uh, and then renamed Desert Attack for the U.S., Here's something else I wanted to get your thoughts on, and maybe I'm just being dopey here. You you described Ice Cold and Alex as a road movie and a war movie, which I think is probably. Yeah. But as I was watching it, and as, as I was also, also as I was especially watching North Northwest Frontier, uh, and even in some respects Guns of Navarone, I, I kept thinking of westerns. Would is it fair to say that the you know that the least certainly Ice Cold and Alex Northwest Frontier feel almost like they're westerns have that structure to them and those sort of well at least those westerns that are and 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 war movies that are mission movies right where you know you you set up you actually have maps in the film and you set up the objective and we have to get over here to here um and i guess that makes them all kind of action movies uh you know not all westerns are our mission movies or, you know, that where they're on the trail of an outlaw or on a, or on a, the cattle. Yeah. But like stagecoach, that kind of a Western. Sure. A mission movie where you've got to get a group of people from, from one point to the next. And, you know, I suppose the better way to, to describe it is just, you know, as an action film or even really a suspense film, because it's just loaded with these, set pieces that are so memorable and some of them are you know our action set pieces and we talk a little bit about this with mark goldblatt they're they're uh you know uh, pulling a man out of quicksand or trying to get a a a, a truck up a you know a, a desert dune hill uh which really makes you think of uh Clouseau's the wages of fear and sorcerer the william friedkin remake um but then there are other extraordinary suspense set pieces that are just people sitting in a room. Yeah. And and talking and it's it's all beautifully constructed um and Goldblatt talks a little bit more about this with uh building character and alternating these set pieces with with scenes that just just show you character and show you who the John Mills character is and who the other people on the ambulance are, which include the great uh, classically trained British actor Anthony Quayle and the actress Sylvia Sims, both of whom worked for uh, Thompson a lot, and uh, Harry Andrews, who's an immediately recognizable British character actor who's just in dozens and dozens of movies from Moby Dick to Superman and uh, so many so many movies you'll you'll immediately recognize him as the sergeant major yeah it's really it's fair to um see it as an action film but it's really um it's a beautifully classically designed um you know suspense film do you know how many films he directed in total uh i think around 47 and that includes a couple made for television features from the 70s so so around 47 features he directed but in you know in the 30s he was at Elstree Studios and wrote uh, in England and he wrote a number of you know low budget movies that they produced at the studio but he really kind of took that opportunity of being at the studio to learn the craft of filmmaking and he hung out uh in editing rooms with David Lean who was just a just a cutter at that time and he was the dialogue director uh, on Hitchcock's Jamaica Inn in 1939. And he, he talked a lot with Hitchcock and learned a lot of his methods. And I guess he, he took his method of storyboarding to heart, at least for you know, his era of British films and into, I guess, his first era of Hollywood films. You can really tell in these early British films, especially in Ice Cold and Alex, how planned out the action sequences are and how well-timed they are and... And working with Gilbert Taylor, you know, really focused on putting the camera in the most exciting and advantageous places that create depth and depth of field. And they're, they're often camera angles that make your pulse race. Thompson isn't usually thought of as like an aut- auteur, right? And 
is that because he didn't he didn't do a lot of writing once he settled into directing um, and he also didn't didn't choose uh, yes. a particular genre that he or he didn't have any particular themes that carry him through uh, his 40 plus films it kind of depends on who you're talking to right so th- there are there are some in fact there's a um, there's a uh, British film historian named uh, Steve Chinbull who's written a book on Thompson and made a case for him as an auteur. He did write a lot of his first films uh, when he became a director in the 50s. He wrote a play, I think, just before the war, in the early days of the war, that um, ended up being his first feature film in 1950. And uh, that didn't get him much attention, but his second film was a movie called the Yellow Balloon, and I've just caught up with that one, and it's quite good. It's a real nifty kind of suspense thriller in the tradition of, uh, well, a Hitchcockian tradition, actually. It's about a little kid who witnesses the death of one of his playmates, and the crime is witnessed by a criminal who takes advantage of the kid and brings him into his own kind of uh, nefarious enterprises, his criminal enterprises, and that got him a lot of attention, Um wasn't a huge blockbuster, but it, it, it got him attention. And he was allowed to direct films at least one a year for the rest of the 50s. And some of them are some of them are very well known uh, in England. Uh, uh, he did two uh, women in prison films starring uh, the British actress Diana Dors, who was kind of a British sex symbol, kind of the British English answer to Marilyn Monroe. Uh, but neither I say women in prison films, but neither of them are exploitation films. They're both really sensitive films. And the, and the second film, which is called uh, Vigil in the Night in England and Blonde Sinner in the U.S., talk about an exploitation title, was, uh, at least for a, a great part of Thompson's career, the one film he pointed at as, as the film he was proudest of. And it's, um, it's, a, it, uh, it's, it's a film about um, the death penalty. And Diana Doors plays a woman on death row in the film, and it's it's really powerful. And it's a much better film than um, I Want to Live, which came out around the same time in the U.S. It's kind of the British answer to that film. Uh, Vigil in the Night is really uh, really powerful and and much more much more um, convincing and and realistic. But anyway, that, that he makes a number of films up through. 57 and I think the turning point is Ice Cold and Alex because it's a it's a much more ambitious film he takes everybody on location to Libya um, according to most people who worked on the film the shooting conditions were grueling but it's a it's a it's a film that's much wider in scope it's it's a real kind of action odyssey real epic um, and uh, it was very successful in England and I think it kind of begins a period for him, his real golden period, where if he was ever going to be recognized as an auteur or somebody who, you know, was a, a considerable artist, even a, if if not a popular artist, was that period starting with Ice Cold and Alex in '57, and then culminating with his first film made in the U.S., which is Cape Fear in 1962. And what he basically happens is he makes he makes Ice Cold and Alex and uh, and then another film with Sylvia Sims and Herbert Lom, who was an actor he worked with frequently, um, the title of which is No Trees in the Street. That's it. No Trees in the Street. Thanks. Then he makes a, a really well-known film uh, that I think was an art house sensation in the U.S. called Tiger Bay which reunites him with John Mills again, the star of Ice Cold and Alex, and introduces the world to John Mills' daughter, Haley. And uh, she's the star of the film, along with John Mills and Horst Buchholz, who later became one of the Magnificent Seven. And it's a, a kind of variation of the, of the themes and the story of the Yellow Balloon. This time, an innocent girl witnesses a murder, and the murderer, who is very sympathetically portrayed by Horst Buchholz, takes her on the run uh, as he's trying to elude the law, and they kind of have a uh, they have a friendship that develops between them, and and he becomes a 
a bit of a father figure to her. She's she's fatherless in the film, and that's a wonderful film with great, even um, even more amazing work from Gilbert Taylor, that I think is currently on the Criterion Channel. Um, he then um, makes one more film in Europe that uh, gets him, I think, is completely funded by the studios. It's a Columbia film, and it's called I Aim at the Stars, and it's a biopic about Werner von Braun, the controversial rocket scientist who's played by Kurt Jurgens in the film. I've never seen it. Um, I'm another one I need to catch up with very soon, and I think I have a chance. Um, but but uh, what happens then is Columbia puts into production The Guns of Navarone in Europe, uh, which is written and produced by Carl Foreman and starring the Gregory Peck, David Niven, and Anthony Quinn. The cast and crew are all assembled. They start filming in Greece with the director Alexander McKendrick, another Englishman who made some Hollywood productions. And it just doesn't work out. They've almost, I think, from the first day of shooting, the uh, Peck and, and Foreman have decided they've picked the wrong guy for the job. And they start looking at Thompson's movies. He's been recommended to them, and they watch Northwest Frontier and Tiger Bay, and they say, this is our guy, and J. Lee Thompson becomes the director of what uh, I think is the first contemporary, modern action blockbuster movie. Did I, did I read that Gregory Peck referred to... Um thompson as mighty mouse on the set of guns of never Own yeah was that he, because he was just able to get in and take care of any situation that's and, the impression i got yeah yeah that was one of his nicknames it, it, it that really opens the doors for thompson because guns of Navarone is just a huge success all over the world and so he then makes his first film in the u.s and that's cape fear which gregory peck has again recruited him for the other thing, the thing about Thompson is, is that there are a- actors, crew members and screenwriters and cinematographers who just adored working with him and mm-hmm. working on his sets and continued to. And, you know, sometimes they do a number of films with him in a row. Sometimes they'd take a break of 10 or 20 years. But, you know, they, sometimes the actors would re- request him. Sometimes he'd get the actors back that he wanted and they really adored working with him. Um, one of the things I think that kind of kept his reputation from growing, at least, you know, as an auteur or someone, is that, you know, it's possible that The Guns of Navarone is his best film or certainly his best known film and most popular film. And, but I think because Carl Foreman was so good at publicizing himself and because he was the one who, you know, wrote the script and produced it and, and called a significant number of the shots, you know, in assembling the film, he's thought of as, you know... Maybe maybe even first before Thompson is the well is the guy who made that film. Yeah, on the uh, Blu-ray uh, making of documentaries that accompany uh, Guns and Nav- Navarone, it's all about Foreman and and uh, Thompson is sort of like an afterthought when people are talking about the production. And yeah, stuff. it's weird. Well, if anything, at least Thompson got to live quite a bit longer, so he got to kind of make the case for himself later on, and he also continued to you know continue to work and. You know, and had you know had the occasional hits, but something something happens after Cape Fear. He does two period epic films, uh, which you know have their defenders, Taurus Bulba and Kings of the Sun, and you know they're just they're kind of undistinguished. But then he, you know he tries his hands at a number of genres, auteur or not. You know, all things aside, there's the through line for me in watching uh, those golden era uh, Thompson movies this week, as well as some of his later period films that he made with Charles Bronson, uh, was that the through line is the as sort of the excellence uh, of the direction of those films. That sure. that you know he rises to the level of. The, the good or great scripts that came his way. Um, right. And, and even when he was working with material or budgets that were far below those golden era films, his direction is still great. You, you never, 
you, you feel like he elevates the material as much as he can with his contributions, you know, and throughout working with all different cinematographers and editors, you see the same things. You see really interesting and clever, um, you know, setups for scenes and camera angles and, and well-crafted uh, suspense set pieces in, in all of the films that I watched. You know, even the worst of them, you, you, you can't fault the direction. And I think that's pretty impressive. I agree. And uh, always coherent uh, and always gripping on some level. Um, I'd say he had the most difficulty with comedy, which he didn't do too often. But right after Terrace Balba and Kings of the Sun, he does two back-to-back Shirley MacLaine comedies, one of which isn't bad, um, the first one, which is called What a Way to Go, and has a script by Comden and Green, who wrote Singing in the Rain. Um, but then he does a um, another film with Shirley MacLaine for Fox and Cinemascope, a comedy called John Goldfarb, Please Come Home, which is a real drag. It's just one of those uh, 60s comedies that's trying to be you know, so topical and political and zany and is just detestable from <laughs> frame one. It's hard to listen to. Mm-hmm. It's hard to watch. Yeah. But that film is, is has, has an interesting kind of uh, note to Thompson's career because it was written by William Peter Blatty, who not only went on to write the novel and the screenplay for The Exorcist, um, but in the book, he created a character of a movie director named Burke Dennings, who is widely uh, understood, and Blatty admitted it, to be based on J. Lee Thompson. And in fact, something I read this morning, the early, the earliest cast list from Warner Brothers, when The Exorcist was being put into production, listed J. Lee Thompson as playing Burke Dennings. And at some point, he decided not to do it. Maybe he, he couldn't finish Battle for the Planet of the Apes on time. <laughs> did 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 J. Lee appear in other films as an actor? Not that I know of. Hmm. Uh, maybe early on in, uh, in the British... Um, Days, but there are no credits on on IMDb, and maybe uh, maybe there's some cameos, or maybe he does some walk-ons in some of his films. But I've I've never I've never heard that before. He's pretty well photographed on the sets of his films. You you can you can find pictures of him out there. Um, but Burke Dennings, the character in The Exorcist, uh, gets killed in both the book and the film by the, by the demon in the film. The actor playing him, Jack McGowan, died during production, and they had to write off, write him off of the film in the kind of mysterious way. You don't actually see him getting killed because he wasn't around to to have that filmed. If they if they were planning on doing, which I actually thing. think works in the film's favor, actually, <laughs> that it's oh, that yeah. mysterious. Yeah, kind of. but you know, a lot a lot of people, I guess, know this about about Thompson, and they you know, and they and they, I guess, they base whatever assumptions they have on him uh or whatever whatever they know about him they base on you know jack mcgowan's portrayal or whatever blatty wrote about him in the book uh i i i guess he you know like dennings had a tendency to drink and you know but you know he's also portrayed as a kind of bomb vivant and a likable person um and that and that was true i don't know if you know drinking had anything to do with um his you know kind of lack of reputation, uh, you know, lack of an autouristic following, but, you know, he continued to work steadily. He made, I'm pretty sure he made at least one film a year uh, between 1950 and 1989. And, you know, at least certainly averages out to more than that. That's amazing. That, that's, yeah. that's pretty extraordinary. Yeah. And, um, and and there and every now and then, you know, after Cape Fear, there's there's there are, there's interesting work. I don't think you mentioned it, but you are the co-host of another podcast uh, called uh, Seventy Movies We Saw in the Seventies." That you're co-hosting with Mike McPadden, and your the, the discussion you said you had about Ice Cold and Alex when discussing Conquest of the Planet of the Apes can be can be heard on that podcast. I want to give a. Uh, 
big recommendation for listening and it's it's going to be it's going to be a great podcast if any indication from the first episode but thank you i'm excited for us to bring you on as a guest on one of these future episodes uh oh that'll be fun but but i think for most for a lot of people of our generation that was our first exposure to the films of jay lee thompson yeah uh guns and the guns of navarone was something that was on tv all the time that i remember i have a good friend who's got a guns of navarone action playset. i think from Miko or Hasbro or something like that, uh, but uh, but he directed two planet the last two Planet of the Apes films. In fact, uh, uh, I think we were talking about this. The best of the sequels, which is Conquest, and the worst, which is Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And one thing I found out in uh, uh, researching the podcast was that uh, he was an early candidate to direct the first Planet of the Apes. Hmm. He wound up not being available, but he was Arthur P. Jacobs' first choice as director for Planet of the Apes. He did a couple other films for Jacobs, too. There was um, a movie uh, with Gregory Peck called The Chairman in 1969, which isn't great, but uh, like Planet of the Apes, has a great Jerry Goldsmith score. So I recommend it for that. Um, and they did a Huckleberry Finn version in 1974, which isn't bad at all. It's, it's actually uh, good. Well, you know, yeah. back to Guns of Navarone, and, which I think is something that kind of ties into where Thompson eventually wound up. You know, I mentioned that I think of it as the first commercial blockbuster action movie one that you know paved the way and and there are some reasons for that one is and this was i guess discussed during production the screenplay has a lot of elements um a lot of suspense and a lot of serious moments but essentially the story is kind of pulpy kind of comic booky um and the type of thing you might have only seen in like a b you know Roger Corman type war film from the late 50s or, you know, William Whitney war movie. Some, you know, really outrageous elements that are completely convincingly rendered by the great cast and Thompson's assured direction. So you have that and you have these giant action set pieces and literally giant action sets. You have the giant guns in the cave um, and the big set piece on the uh, boat. Mm -hmm where the, the Germans pull up and they're completely wiped out by the totally capable, totally badass team of commandos. Well, and then the shipwreck. The shipwreck sequence, uh, uh, you, know, you know, in the storm. I mean, there's, you know, there, and then there's countless other scenes. And I think that if you, you know, if you look at that and you look at the sets and the, the almost impossible killing ability <laughs> murdering ability of the commandos and their slickness and the use of humor and that leads directly to the james bond films which start coming out the next year clint eastwood movies and the sergio leone westerns the kind of sardonic humor of those films and the you know the killing machine and then on to mm -hmm. you know uh dirty harry and uh mad max in the 70s the you know these kind of super warriors. Uh, I mean, the characters in Guns of Neverland are a lot more flawed than the man with no name. Um, and, and, and therefore, you know, maybe even more interesting. But, you know, I think there's a direct line from all of those movies and, and then, the, you know, the kind of action cycles of the 80s, you know, the Bruce Willis, Sylvester Stallone action epic Schwarzenegger films. And it's interesting because when those things really start to become dominant at the box office, Thompson's in the last phase of his career making what are, you know, some would say the exploitation knockoffs of these kinds of movies at Canon Films. They're, you know, they're good. I mean, a lot of them are very good. They're, you know, they're, they're trashy and they, and they have exploitation elements. No, that's another aspect of Thompson's career. Uh, he's something he said early on is that, you know, we have to compete with television and we have to make movies distinguishable from the kind of generic family entertainment that television um, had. And he wanted to make movies for adults. So mm -hmm. increasingly, um, 
I mean, the, the levels of violence in, in movies like Northwest Frontier and Guns of Navarone, uh, even um, Ice Cold and Alex to some extent. Uh, so it's not, it's not, I'd say, a gratuitously violent film. So those get kind of ratcheted up. And then Cape Fear is a kind of a groundbreaking film in the way it deals with rape and violence. And, and this becomes something he's frequently confronting in films and... Uh, and when by the time he's making the canon films in the 80s, you know, he's 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 ready for it. And he makes, yeah. a, a, again, at least one film a year. And the Bronson films at canon are, you know, more interesting than the ones uh, that Thompson doesn't direct. Um, right. the, the Thompson Bronson films and and conversely, the films that Thompson makes. At Canon, at least uh, Firewalker with Chuck Norris and Louis Gossett Jr. is not nearly as good as the as the Bronson films. Um, yeah, they were a good team. They were, and, and I think I you know I want to say that they they were lucky enough, if I understand it right, and I'm reading the credits right, to work fairly independently of Golan and Globus. I think um, they had a production unit with the producer Pancho Koner who was also Bronson's agent. And I think they were able to kind of like just take the money and make the movies they wanted to make for canon, you know, once they got script approval. I, I, that's not the case with Death Wish 4, which Koner had nothing to do with. And I think was just kind of Thompson and, and, and Bronson, you know, cranking out another one of those uh, for the first time without Michael Winner. And, you know, in, in, in many ways it's, it's the it's the best film of that cycle just by virtue of having Thompson and not Michael Winner direct it. It is interesting to me that uh, that after doing those um, those uh, sensitive uh, death penalty movies in the fifties that he wound up late in his career doing these sort of pro vigilante Bronson movies. Uh, yeah, <laughs> where the death penalty is meted out by anybody who happens to, well, whose name happens to be Charles Bronson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, whereas I think um, Michael Winner was kind of a closet reactionary, you know, who, who thought he was sensitively handling, you know, issues of violence and, and rape in his movies. I think Thompson, you know, should be given some credit for uh, both saying that and doing it. He actually did in several, on several occasions handle things in a, um, you know, in a, in a much more sensitive or, you know, less reactionary manner that actually makes you think about the effects of violence. You know, we were both talking earlier about the last moments of Messenger of Death, which is Thompson's second to last film and the second to last film he made with Bronson, which, you know, ends with uh, a, a kind of um, murder rampage being, you know, coming coming to a conclusion and it ends with a suicide and the apprehension of another murderer and and the last shot is of kind of Bronson's, uh, I won't say wistful, but kind of, uh, you know, pained face. Like he's, you know, he's having to deal with you know, and and literally face to face with this violence, and it's a pretty it's a well acted moment by Bronson. He's you know he's much more engaged as you were saying in these Thompson films than he is in you know the Michael Winter films and and some of the other uh, films. And I should I should also say you know Bron his associate with Bronson lasted much longer than they went started well before the eighties. He did three films in the late seventies with him, all none of which are as good as any of the Canon films. Uh, far more uh, artsy and kind of trying to do trying to fit Bronson into different different uh, roles uh, that that are, that are kind of different for him. Co uh, the last one they did before their first canon film is Cabo Blanco, which isn't really a remake of Casablanca, but it's you know it's it's a film that you know wants to evoke it every chance it gets and is is not very good and not very successful at at uh, doing anything except reminding you of what a much, much better movie Casablanca is. Well, I think we're both saying don't miss the opportunity to jump on a free uh, viewing of Ice Cold and Alex, which we both highly recommend. 
Yes. And and that if you are then inspired to do a deeper dive and jumping down the J. Lee Thompson rabbit hole, uh, we think there are plenty of great choices for you to uh, spend your time with J. Lee. I think we will create a J. Lee trailer gallery uh, on our blog. So look for that. Look for that uh, in the next week. We should be able to get that up fairly soon. Um, I'm, thanks for doing this deep dive with me. This was oh, this thanks was fun. for inviting me to do it. I've had a great time this week watching these. I'm glad we got to to talk about Jay Lee. Uh, we're going to be joined now by Mark Goldblatt. Mark Goldblatt is a graduate of UW Madison and the editor of some of contemporary cinema's most popular and enduring action blockbusters. Uh, for starters, The Terminator, Commando, another Arnold Schwarzenegger action classic, Rambo First Blood Part Two, Starship Troopers, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, X-Men 3, True Lies, Pearl Harbor, and Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which earned him an Academy Award nomination. Goldblatt earned his reputation editing two low-budget horror movie classics for director Joe Dante, Piranha and The Howling, in 1979 and 1981. Those movies led to his association with Canon Films co-studio head and frequent director Menachem Golan, and Goldblatt's work for Canon culminated in the 1984 action drama The Ambassador, directed by J. Lee Thompson and starring Robert Mitchum. Uh, also starred Ellen Burstyn and Rock Hudson. So we screened The Ambassador at the Cinematheque in 2017 along with 52 Pickup. Uh, both movies are adapted very differently from the same novel by Elmore Leonard. Four years before that, in 2013, Mark Goldblatt had visited the Cinematheque to present a 35-millimeter print of The Punisher, one of two feature films he directed for New World Pictures in the late 1980s. So remembering his connection to J. Lee Thompson from that visit, uh, we remember discussing it with him on that visit. We spoke to Mark earlier this week and asked for his thoughts on Ice Cold and Alex and he also reflected on his time working with J. Lee Thompson. And here is that talk. Mark Goldblatt, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Cinema Talk. I would love to know your impressions on Ice Cold and Alex, particularly uh, the impressions of, a, of an, a, an action movie specialist as, a, an, as an editor and director yourself of, of action movies. Well, I was very impressed with Ice Cold and Alex. I, I only saw it recently, thanks to you turning me on to the re restored version of the film. Um, it, 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 it's, it's really a remarkable movie because it's, on the one hand, it's a World War II picture and it's kind of got a lot of realism to it. Uh, for various reasons, there's some stock footage in the beginning of the picture to set the scene of the, uh, the desert realities between the Brits and the Nazis. And as somebody said, the, the film is less about politics and more about what good men and women do when faced with a challenge. In fact, J. Lee Thompson, whose work I'm somewhat familiar with, and of course I've worked with him as well, editing a movie called The Ambassador, is a director who finds depth and different levels in which he, when he exposes his characters and puts his characters into dramatic situations, which is to say that they are more realistic because they have multifacets to their characters. Well, we were talking uh, just before uh, about the American release of the film, which was limited. I guess it came out in 1961, just before the American release of the Guns of Navarone. Right. And so, but uh, the film was severely cut down to uh, varying reports, but the one I've seen the most is 78 minutes, uh, which which uh, is almost an hour uh, cut out of the film. And, and 
you know, you uh, we were you you mentioned that you were looking at it as an uh, with the eye uh, with an editor's eye as to how that that might get done. And and what were your thoughts there? Well, you know, I'll just paraf- uh, put put it in context. Very often, editors are called in to trim movies now. Say the studio has a two and a half hour movie, and they want it down to ninety five minutes. Now that's happened a lot, and uh, sometimes it's a good thing. Uh, more often than not, it's a disaster. Yeah. Uh, no doubt that the more sensitive moments in Ice Cold and Alice are the moments that have been deleted that are more character-based and have to do with the inner emotions of the characters that are interacting. Uh, in, in the case of Vice Cold and Alex, what would they have cut out? Well, my guess is that they would have gone, if they changed the movie's title to a title like Desert Attack, which is what they did. Pretty generic. Generic. Basically, they're going to go for the action beats. And there are a number of set pieces that are quite wonderful in the movie. But the movie shifts gears every now and again. Although you always feel that you're under pressure. You know, they're going to run out of petrol before they can get the help. They're going to die eviscerated, burned in the desert by the sun. They'll never make it. It's an impossible task. Uh, it's a road movie in a way. And it's, uh, it's pretty intense. But a lot of the intensity is the emotional component. To compress the movie, you can take the story, the, the action beats, and pretty much tell the same story without having any of the inner psychology of the characters. It, it's the dynamic of what the movie is. That, that is what the movie is. It's ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances, which is, in fact, a good way to look at Jay Lee Thompson's work, and one way to look at it, because many of his movies are about that, that very thing. Right. And, and the other thing about Jay Lee Thompson, I'll just say, is that he is a master craftsman. He designs his movies in ways that are economically shot, yet tell the story very well. They, they never seem like he's going for average coverage or shooting. You know, so, so many movies kind of look alike or feel like they could be the work of any anybody. But his films always have an innate intelligence and investment in the characters, which is something that I think also comes through in his relationship to his actors. Because the actors are playing their characters. And, you know, a good director is going to help them find their way in the characterizations Hmm. and be consistent with their innate characters. And then the action comes out of that personality. So there's no doubt that a lot of the well-known actors that he's worked with have the highest respect for Thompson. I know that to be the case on The Ambassador or Robert Mitchum who at that point in his career had often kind of walked through some of his later roles. Sure. Kind of, you know, and I think part of that is that Lee, he respected Lee completely. And actors, when they respect the director, will sometimes let go and let the director help them to find what they have to find so that they can excel. If you look at The Ambassador, the movie I worked on, Mitchum gives a very nuanced, multi-level performance. Very late in his career. You know, it kind of pains me in a way, because this is a movie that got virtually no release in the United States. Uh, Maybe they they just figured there was no box office for people who weren't interested. They didn't know about the Israeli situation or care. I want to talk more about it, but let's jump back uh, and... and go back to Ice Cold and Alex a little bit. I just have a few more questions to ask you about it. Um, the the set pieces themselves, uh, as you mentioned, the the quicksand, the 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 the, the getting the truck up the sand dune. It, what what when you when you watch something like that, I mean, he really nails suspense, uh, and that's and that's key. 
um, just keeps you on the edge of your seat. What what is what's the key component um, in in terms of their editing and staging that that makes them so effective? One of the key components is investment in the characters that are going for the action, and you're not just viewing the action, but you're viewing the action through the eyes of the characters who are under fire, if, if that's what's happening, being attacked. And that gives you the emotional frisson to inter interrelate the audience and puts themselves in the same situation. And they're fighting for their lives too. And, you know, commensurate with this is also the great technical skill that Lee has in staging these scenes and delivering the goods. You feel it's weird. The movie was made in 1958. Uh, it doesn't feel dated at all. It, place, it, it, it's a historical time, but it's, you know, in filmmaking-wise, it could have been made yesterday. And it's exciting. It's just exciting. I, I, I mean, I, I compare it almost, in the quicksand scene in particular, uh, I, I, I'm trying to think which came first, Clouseau's Wages of Fear. I, I I think I think there's a quite a bit of Wages of Fear in this film, which was I think 1952 or 1953, so a few years before. Yeah, and I take it that Lee was a cineast as well. Right. And he came as he started out as a writer, so he knew about details. Yeah. Well, so I think what you're saying then is that if we have a 77 or 78 minute version that has all the action set pieces. Uh, in order to be, you know, as exciting as possible, but without the more intimate uh, scenes that build character, the, the the idea that it's going to be more exciting or effective is is going to be completely lost because you have no characters to care about at that point. It could be very boring. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I've never seen it. Uh, <laughs> I, I imagine it didn't get much of a wide release. No, I think maybe it was just a kind of a low-budget exploitation company that kind of dumped it out there. Uh, yeah, maybe with that title, they stuck it on the bottom half of the double bills and drive it. I was, the thing they, I guess he took from Hitchcock was Hitchcock's storyboarding, that uh, he was really impressed by that, that it allowed Hitchcock to be prepared and to kind of direct the movie from wherever he was, uh, you know, uh, basically have everything set out but um and that's that's obviously something he took to heart on the suspense sequences and ice cold and alex and northwest frontier and 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 guns of no guns of navarone but i wondered if um if you think that kind of um uh that kind of planning that kind of storyboarding if it can have any other if it can have a negative effect on the film maybe especially for the editor depends on who's doing the boards Right. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm obviously a huge Hitchcock fan. Or anyone who loves film would be a huge Hitchcock fan. Uh, but everyone has different ways of working. Hitchcock meticulously plotted out the making of the movie. And, you know, is notoriously known as someone who said that the actual making of the movie was sometimes boring to him because he'd already made it in his head, and now he, the rest of it was just recreating it. As a, story as a storyteller, a filmmaker can learn a lot from Hitchcock because he invests psychology, human psychology, in his storyboards. See, storyboards, the one thing about them is they're not three-dimensional in the sense that they don't demonstrate the emotional under, underpinning in the characters. They, they show what the characters do, but they don't show how they play, play it in, 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 in the relationship. So for somebody who doesn't have a firm grasp of acting, and, and this is where Lee, I think, is very strong, but it's a hard thing to to analyze as to where he's doing it, but it's the way he works with actors. This is what makes a, a, a really good director and a great director, is that they're able to infuse these subtextual concepts into, into the text. 
which you're not going to see on a storyboard. Yeah. But you have to know when you're putting the storyboards together what the subtext is, or else how can you be sure that you're getting it from your actors? Yeah, I think in, in this period of his career, Thompson was really concerned about that. And I, doing a little research on Ice Cold and Alex, I found out that uh, as beloved, especially among British audiences, that all of the set pieces are, the that we talked about, the action set pieces, the one set piece that people love the most is the final sequence in the in the bar. Normal people in extraordinary circumstances. Yeah. And and the culmination of all of that is in the final scene. Four four people in a bar and it's it's also just as suspenseful as, you know, as the uh, the truck going up the sand dune. And another collaborator who uh, he worked a lot with at this time uh, is his cinematographer Gilbert Taylor, who also shot Star Wars right. uh, later down the road. And I was thinking, really, um, you were saying that uh, how much uh, Thompson finds depth in 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 almost every sequence, and and so does Taylor, right? I mean, there's the the way he just layers the image and where he places the camera or working and working with Thompson on where to place the camera. And, and uh, there's just always a feeling of using as much of the space as possible. And, and uh, I wonder if you had any reflections on Taylor's work in Ice Cold and Alex. Well, it's beautifully done. I mean, it's really impressive. I mean, one of the things I think about in Ice Cold and Alex is a black and white film takes place in the desert where one of the characters is really the, the, the sun and the heat that it generates. Sure. And, and the opposition that it creates and the, and the difficulties that it creates. And you really, you get a feeling. I mean, this is just overall. You get thirsty watching the movie. <laughs> you, get, you get a really strong feeling of that desert and the light. But just uh, swish the water around in your mouth a little bit and spit it out. Don't swallow it. It'll just make you thirstier. That's right. That's a good quote from the movie. I'll have to remember that next time I'm stranded in the desert. The ambulance yeah. is also a character. He finds so many interesting ways to shoot the vehicle. Sylvia Sims is in this movie. And she's, I, she's an actress that I've, I've seen before, but I never quite thought about her. And she's exceptionally good. Very good. Um... She's beautiful, but she's got great pathos, great range of emotions, subtext. You read in her eyes what's going on. It's really impressive. They, she and Anthony Quayle were the stars of Thompson's previous film, which was called Woman in a Dressing Gun, which I'm going to catch up with very soon. I, I hear very good things about it. And she... Yeah, she got a, a British Academy Award, I think, for that film and got a lot of notice and it was kind of the film that launched her launched her career and then that nice golden Alex mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, she, yeah. still Thompson, around yeah I say Thompson often uses the same actors again Anthony Quayle he's in Navarone yep he'd bring on actors into new productions and they you know of course John Mills was in Tiger Bay just two years later along with um, Haley yeah have you have you watched it recently it's on the Criterion yeah. channel I, I should watch it. It's very good, and it and it it is the most uh, one of the most excitingly photographed films too. Again, black and white. Gilbert Taylor, really uh, uh, great, great looking film. Where's Bill Coles is in that? He is. That was the that was the film that really launched him. That and the, he did right. the Magnificent Seven the next year. So, and it's amazing how things work. Yeah. <laughs> So back to uh, the ambassador and your time working with Thompson. What can you tell us about about the man and his working methods? How did you interact with him? Well, I had an interesting arc with Lee. Uh, I should start by talking about how I got onto the movie in the first place. Please. I had been working for uh, Malcolm Golan, one of the co-owners of Canon Films. Malcolm in addition to being a studio head, so to speak, uh, was a director and a writer. And he would do all, all those different tasks 
uh, depending on the film that you're working on. And um, I had come in on a picture that he did called Over the Brooklyn Bridge. And uh, he liked what I did. Actually, I, the first thing I did for him was Enter the Ninja. I came in and kind of took that over with another guy. A very really, popular and influential film, right? Into the well, it was popular, and to the degree, to a degree that nobody anticipated at Cannes. Uh, Menachem felt that I had added greatly to the value of that movie because um, it was pure action, basically. And uh, so he wanted me back. He, he gave, gave me uh, Over the Brooklyn Bridge, which is a film he directed. And uh, that worked out, although it didn't do so well at the box office. Menachem directed the film, and he felt that I had elevated the film to a higher degree than he thought it would be. So as a result, he tried to force me on all the directors that he had working for him uh, to pitch me as an editor, since he knew he could rely on me. And it's not that I was his toady or anything, but that I could be trusted to make the movie better. That's all. But most of the, most of the directors, like Andrew Konchalovsky, who was one guy he approached, didn't want anything to do with me because they thought that I was going to be reporting back to Menachem. That's fair enough. I can understand that. Hmm. At this point, I think the biggest film I had done was The Howling. Uh, the, the Canon films, in terms of career perception, was really a step down. But they were movies made by oftentimes good directors, and in terms of Lee, an excellent director. And uh, anyway, I figured that Lee would have me do the first cut while he was in Israel shooting the picture, and come back and see it and then replace me. Because he kept Lee, he, he was distrustful of me. We'd have discussions on the phone and stuff. And he'd say things like, uh, now, don't just use close-up, 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 close-up. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, now, I don't, I particularly don't cut that way. I try to milk the footage, but keep it true to the emotions and the psychology of the scene. Anyway, he came back. I ran the movie for him uh, about a week later. And if you know the movie, it was the entire movie up until the final attack scene. The attack scene I hadn't cut because I figured it would take about two to three weeks. Mm. So I, I wanted to get the rest of the film in shape so I could show him the bulk of my efforts. And he said, that's fantastic. He said, it's the best first cut I've ever seen. Don't touch a frame. Now, that's what any editor wants to hear. But Thompson comes from a tradition of, of craft in which it was very common. Most of the times, the directors were not in the editing room with the editors working daily. Today, a lot of directors feel that it's their responsibility to get in up close and personal, and uh, which is fine if that's what they want to do. It's not fine, however, if that impedes the process of the editing. You know, my my thing is always I I made it clear up front that I want the opportunity to do an editor's cut uh, before somebody comes in and dismantles it. And then if they have notes or changes, we do we work them through. But let me do what I think is right, or else you'll never know. And uh, Lee, of course, came from that tradition where the editor edited the film right. and would get notes. I mean, you know, most of these great directors didn't sit in the editing room. Hawks, Ford, they, they, they got editors that they trusted, and they knew what they shot. And anyway, they shot things to a certain degree where they could only be cut in a variety of ways. Jay Lee's stuff is kind of like that, although there's plenty of room to extrapolate from the storyboards. As far as you know, he was still working with storyboards then? Oh, I, I didn't see any storyboards. Oh. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. 
I'm curious if, if he was still working with those methods because he was enormously prolific during those canon years. At least one film a year for a 10-year period, the whole age. It was, it was fast. And obviously fast in pre-production. And uh, to make a long story short, three weeks later, I showed him the, the whole movie. He didn't make any change. He didn't have a single note. Hmm. And Occam had no notes. It was amazing. <laughs> did, so, that, did that end up being the last film you cut for Canon? Yes. And I went on from that to do The Terminator. And with the same DP, Adam Greenberg, ah. who not only did The Ambassador, but did Over the Brooklyn Bridge with Elliot Cool. Ah. And I knew him very well, so I thought it was ironic or something predestined. Right. Well, it's and, true. The rest was history, right? The Terminator. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it was great. And Lee wanted me to do his next film, but for a variety of reasons I didn't do it, uh, Canon Films would, wouldn't pay my salary. But it's <laughs> the movie they were shooting in South Africa, and they wanted me to take my salary in South African money. <laughs> part of it. So, but that's all right, because I got a call to come do Rambo 2. Right. And they were in the middle of shooting. So it worked out for me, but I, I, I didn't see Lee again. But I was very gratified that he requested me to come mm -hmm. back. Well, he was very, I, I, he was very savvy, film savvy. And he was kind of fearless. And that's what I liked the most in filmmaking, is, is confronting the possibilities of what you can do with the footage and transcending the possibilities and make, make, making it work ultimately. Uh, I remember when I showed him the, the attack scene in uh, Ambassador, and there's a scene of, where these Israeli students are basically getting slaughtered. And uh, I did one shot, one sequence of shots which was a girl running away from the gunfire, back to the gunfire, back to the girl running, back to the gunfire. But she was running closer and closer to the camera, culminating in her getting shot in a graphic way. And he said, that's Eisenstein. <laughs> and and it, it is true, it was Eisenstein. I mean. I'm not afraid to steal from Eisenstein. Potemkin's <laughs> Steps was one of the greatest sequences to influence me of all things that I ever saw, when it, when, especially as a child. And uh, But he, he, he's first in film. He's savvy as to what's going on. And he, he made very satisfying movies. Sure. Uh, and, and still at that point, jazzed by the process, still... Uh... Oh, yeah, very much jazzed by it. It's nice to hear. That's why he was so protective of the film when I first came on and was testing me. Because he, 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 he didn't know who I was. And he knew that Menachem had recommended me. And that may or may not be a good thing. You know, so. But he cared. He's very eclectic in a way, too. Yeah. More so than it first appears. Look at a movie like Return from the Ashes. That's like a European art film. Well, in fact, it was remade as a European art film just a few years ago. Did you? That's right. I, I, just, I just saw Return from the Ashes and realized it's the exact same material that uh, Christian Petzold's Phoenix is based on. That's right. That's exactly right. I prefer the Thompson version. I, I, I confess that this, I do too. In fact, my what I found interesting was that Clearly, Petzold is drawing from Vertigo. Uh, I don't know if he did that to keep from imitating uh, Thompson's film, but Thompson uh, seems to have another suspense model in mind, and that's uh, Diabolique. Yes. Interesting. Uh, it, it just, it, just in terms of the storytelling and, and, and the look of the film, it's, uh, he's much more interested in... Uh, and getting under your skin in a different way. And, and Petzold kind of brings out the more of the kind of 
vertigo emotion, you know, of the whole yeah. situation. No, you can't go wrong with vertigo. No, you can't. It was a, a smart movie to to uh, decide to remake, I guess. Did I ever tell you the anecdote uh, that I had about Lee? I was told when I sit in, if I have, if I ever work with him in the editing room, and he came in one time to just to look at some things, that I should uh, not leave any important documents in, in within his reach. <laughs> and I said, well, "What does that mean?" He said, "Try it, and you'll see." <laughs> so I, 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 he was he was there. We were looking at a scene or something, and. Um, he grabbed a piece of paper from my bench and started tearing it up in little pieces and just going and going and going until basically the whole thing was like in shreds. <laughs> and so apparently that's something that he just did. So if you left any contracts around, deal memos, they'd be gone forever. It if was just a habit. He liked to make confetti. Yeah. <laughs> It was amazing. Somebody told me that, that something would happen and something did happen. That's great. Well, I think that's a good story to wrap it up on. Mark, is there anything else uh, you wanted to say about Lee Thompson? No. I, I just say that for me, it was one of the highlights of my career was to work with him. Uh, I had been conscious of his films prior to working with him, but my consciousness of his work became much greater when I understood the amount of control and craft that went into his mise-en-scene. Uh, he was not a routine director by any means. He was, he was a precise editorial force. And again, if you look towards the actors who loved to work with him, for example, Bronson would insist upon him on many cases. Mitchum, who goes overboard into the abyss of, of a truly tortured character in The Ambassador. Uh, that just doesn't happen. Uh, this man is in control. This man was a great filmmaker. And I'm glad to see him getting his due, because he deserves it. I'm just lucky to have worked with him. I'm so glad to hear you say that I've, you know, he's someone who's, uh, I just, my admiration for him grows and grows with each film that I see. And, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you were uh, able to join us to discuss him today. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs>